Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, President Xi Jinping calls for BRICS expansion, saying hegemonism is not in China's DNA. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo holds a productive talk with Chinese ambassador to the United States ahead of her China trip. South Korea holds its first nationwide defense drills in some six years amid tensions in the Korean Peninsula. And we are going to take a look at China's ongoing anti-corruption campaign in the medical field. So to listen to this episode again, or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching "World Today." Chinese President Xi Jinping has described development as an inalienable right of all countries, not a privilege of a few. He made the remarks on Wednesday when addressing the BRICS summit in Johannesburg, calling for practical cooperation among member states. The Chinese president said the BRICS countries have agreed to launch an artificial intelligence study group in order to expand AI cooperation. In an earlier speech to a business forum of the event, Xi Jinping voiced support to an expansion of the BRICS to build a more equitable international order. He said China has no wish to engage in great power competition or to create block confrontation. So joining us now on the line is Professor Liu Baochun, director of the Center for International Business Ethics with the University of International Business and Economics. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor. Hi, Dean Han. So, first of all, Professor Liu, regarding this point by President Xi that development is an inalienable right of all countries instead of、uh, the the privilege for a few countries. Uh, what do you think are the are, are some of those pressing issues that are curtailing the growth potential in the vast developing world、uh, today? One pressing issue is the、uh, equitable bargaining power between the South countries versus the Western countries, because、uh, so far the Western countries have not really honored their commitment in terms of the climate change、uh, in helping those developing countries to achieve their target. And uh, uh, second uh, is really the、uh, governance of those、uh, developing countries,、uh, because some of the countries、uh, do not really have a very strong、uh, government that can integrate uh, the uh, different uh, interest groups uh, for uh, the sustainable growth. So that's、uh, another issue. Third is that、uh, developing countries need further unity and integrity. In working together to share their resources, so that they can really synergize、uh, to move forward towards a common goal. And、uh, lastly, I think the、uh, human resource is also the bottleneck because right now we are facing the、uh, landscape changing、uh, in terms of the industrialization、uh, and the urbanization process without the right type of、uh, human capital to support the、uh, growth and transformation. And that's a critical point that are for、uh, most of the countries to strive for in terms of education, training, and、uh, management skills.、Mm. So specifically,、um, why do you think artificial intelligence is an area for、uh, for BRICS countries to strengthen、uh, cooperation or policy coordination? Well, artificial intelligence is the game changer. For、uh, people's life and work, and it's going to penetrate in、uh, all sectors of、uh, the industries. So now we do see already a divide uh, of uh, technological advancement between the、uh, developing countries, even represented by the BRICS countries, versus those、uh, developed world. Because you see that uh, the uh, Google, the Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, etc., they spend billions of dollars to develop. Uh, the artificial intelligence. So there are two outstanding issues here. One is the governance. So how the explosive technology can be governed so that they are able to serve the people and also serve the people around the world instead of、uh, those、uh, wealthy countries.、Uh, 
the second point is that uh, the how we can really make sure that uh, the uh, BRICS countries can also profit from uh, the uh, artificial intelligence in terms of the creativity and also application. And uh, all this can really help to facilitate the uh, integration of trade and investment and so that uh, people can really communicate uh, in a, a more friendly manner. And so this is something that uh, the, uh, a critical point that uh, the uh, BRICS countries need to uh, really to stress on. And so the uh, financial institution, because, you know, BRICS is known for its, uh, the uh, new development bank, should also be there to team up uh, together with the private sector and also the government to strengthen the uh, research and development in the artificial intelligence so that uh, the world will be less polarized and uh, the uh, developing, uh, developing world can also benefit from the uh, new industrialization and new modernization that the human beings are really going to embrace. So do you think expansion of the BRICS will lead to a more equitable international order? At least that's the common consensus from the participating uh, members because uh, uh, all of them have uh, expressed the uh, dissatisfaction over the existing world order and particularly the financial architecture uh, that is uh, left over at, at the uh, Bretton Woods Agreement. And now the Washington consensus is no longer viable among those countries and uh, uh, these countries also disappoint as the uh, deficiency of uh, commitment from the Western countries. So therefore, there's a strong urge for the southern countries to gather together and pool resources together and play by a rule that is there to counterweight the uh, Western hegemonism. And uh, uh, also that uh, there is a, a realistic need for infrastructure development, for uh, reviving some of the crippling economy and also for the uh, new transformation into the digital world. So all of which really needs the sharing of resources and also uh, more the immediately the financial support from the uh, successful playout of the new development bank. And hopefully, you know, they can really ship out uh, some the rule book that can be beneficial uh, to every participating member and also there to improve the existing global order. Hmm. So, by the way, Professor Liu, how do you think, uh, say, countries in the global south or those um, emerging economies, emerging markets, these countries can somehow in one way or another stay united in terms of creating a more just and equitable international order. I'm asking this question because realistically speaking, uh, there are frictions and conflicts, disagreements between different uh, various uh, developing countries as well. Uh, so, and by the way, how, when we talk about, say, enhancing the unity in the global south, for example, how, how do you think China is contributing? Uh, first and foremost, there should be a, a very clear understanding that uh, the uh, south world needs integrity, as, as you say, unity, uh, instead of expediency. Uh, right now, we shall uh, guard against the, the opportunism where uh, countries that desperately need uh, finance uh, with uh, the poor governance are there seeking benefits uh, with the new institution. And so, therefore, the, each country should come uh, with the, uh, their fair share of obligation and uh, contribution, and then they can be entitled to the... Uh, uh, all the privileges of uh, uh, this type of membership. So right now, uh, we do see that uh, the uh, new BRICS Bank or the new Development Bank has been very successful because it is uh, there to maintain on a high level of uh, uh, transparency, uh, equitability, and also sustainability. So with more members joining, uh, there should be a, a very clear understanding 
to go for integrity instead of going for expediency. And the other is that we uh, do need uh, to have a rule book. I know that uh, so many countries are very much enthused to join it. And uh, uh, I uh, do not think the process should be rushed. So there should be a clear uh, criteria and also commitment uh, that are they're required of uh, the new participants uh, in such sort of operation. And then uh, in terms of the project, uh, they, this has to be uh, handled in a very professional and very equitable manner uh, instead of, uh, you know, uh, playing a sort of in-house game. And this is not really to counterweight the existing the uh, financial institutions, but rather a alternative and even a complement to existing financial institutions like IMF, like World Bank, and like the uh, Asian Development Bank, and also the uh, AIB, etc. So this is really uh, badly needed, and this needs to be uh, uh, taken care of with integrity. Mm. So thank you, as always, for joining us. That was Professor Liu Baochun, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics with the University of International Business and Economics. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Chinese ambassador to the United States Xie Feng has called on the U.S. to work with China to make the list of cooperation longer and shorten the negative list in a joint effort to improve the bilateral ties. Xie made the remarks on Tuesday in a meeting with U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo before her Beijing visit. The ambassador stated China's position on economic and trade issues to the secretary, calling on the U.S. side to take actions to resolve the problems. Raimondo raised the issues of importance to American businesses and American workers and discussed the matters relating to the China-U.S. commercial relations, challenges faced by the U.S. businesses, and areas for potential cooperation. The Chinese Ministry of Commerce announced on Tuesday that Raimondo will visit China from August 27th to 30th. She will travel to Beijing and Shanghai, holding meetings with senior Chinese officials as well as U.S. business leaders. So for more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang earlier had a talk with Dr. Zhao Hai, Director of International Political Studies with the National Institute for Global Strategy, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. So Chinese Ambassador to the U.S. Xie Feng met with U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo before her visit to China next week. So what message has the Chinese Ambassador sent? Well, I think the Chinese Ambassador has said uh, uh, during his visit, uh, during their meeting, uh, that uh, China wished the cooperation between the United States as uh, the list should be enlarged and the negative list should be shortened. And that means that so far, um, even though two sides have tried uh, since last November when the two leaders met to improve relations and particularly communications between the two sides, but still many problems remain unsolved. And recently, the U.S. has actually ramped up its uh, export control on China, also capital control uh, on, over China's investment. And therefore, there are more troubles uh, this year uh, than before. So in order to control the downside uh, slope of uh, U.S.-China relationship, particularly commercial relationship, uh, actually China has emphasized that the Raimondo's, Secretary Raimondo's visit to China is very important. Mm. Uh, so there is a high hope that uh, her visit should be successful. And in order to be, uh, for, for that to be successful, the two sides need to have a list for uh, more cooperation and to try to solve some of the hard problems. So how do you see Raimondo's visit at this moment, and what topics or issues will she discuss with the Chinese officials? Well, there are many uh, issues that uh, she would like to talk to the Chinese side. Uh, uh, publicly, uh, the um, Commerce uh, Department 
of the United States said that her visit will have a constructive discussion with the Chinese side on the bilateral trade relationship. Also, U.S. companies uh, investing and doing business in China. Uh, there are concerns of U.S. companies uh, about China's market access and other things uh, in China. And there are other issues like uh, uh, in, uh, bilateral cooperation on international issues. Uh, so there are a variety of issues that two sides can talk about. But for the Chinese side, the most important thing, of course, uh, should be focused on the uh, uh, you know, persistent uh, U.S. tariff on China and also uh, rising U.S. export control on products exporting to China. So in order to have a balanced and fair bilateral relationship, uh, I think uh, it is important that uh, uh, Secretary Raimondo address those issues while she was visiting China. Mm. And the U.S. National Security Advisor Jack Sullivan said uh, Raimondo will carry a message that the U.S. is not seeking to decouple from China, but will protect its uh, national security. So how would you look at this? And do you think the U.S. is trying to strike a delicate balance there? Or do you see the U.S. approach is still essentially moving towards a form of decoupling between the two economies? Well, that issue is still unclear to um, the Chinese side because ever since April, uh, when the U.S. said that they don't want to couple, but they want to de-risk uh, with China uh, on, on economic issues, technology. Um, but there are still questions about what exactly uh, does the U.S. side mean when they talk about de-risking. And mm. the uh, method or the policies that they adopted since then seems to the Chinese side that ultimate result of those policies will still be decoupling, even though the U.S. emphasized that that is not comprehensive decoupling. But, you know, small court, uh, 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 small courtyard, high fence is still a, a way of decoupling, even though it's limited, limited to technology side. Mm-hmm. However, as we know today that many technologies like artificial intelligence are very pervasive and, uh, you know, chip technology is also used in many products. So even though the U.S. only want to control decoupling, for instance, in a very small uh, high-tech area, but ultimately there will be a cascading sort of effect. More products will be involved and wider decoupling will happen. So I think it's very important for this trip that Secretary Raimondo explain to the Chinese side exactly where uh, is the parameter of uh, U.S. side de-risking and what exactly does they mean when they talk about not decoupling but de-risking. Mm. And you mentioned the technology and high-tech sector. Actually, the Biden administration issued an executive order restricting the U.S. tech investment in China earlier this month. And they say the move is primarily driven by national security concerns rather than economic interests. So how do you see the potential impact of this uh, technology investment restrictions? Well, first of all, um, I mean, Chinese side will not accept American explanation that Somehow, those three areas of uh, technology is uh, particularly related to military application and to uh, human rights and other areas of U.S. concern. Uh, because, uh, as we all know, that uh, the military technology are actually using older generation of technology, not touching directly related to those uh, dual-use uh, technology. So, by imposing sanctions and uh, restrictions uh, on investment and export control of those particular areas and particular products, the U.S. is actually repressing China's development, uh, economic development in those areas. And those are actually unfair and cannot be explained like, 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 like they said. Mm. Uh, so again, I think uh, in those areas, the effect of U.S. policy will actually prevent further investment from the U.S. to China. Because as I said, once you control the high end of the supply chain, of the technology chain, and then the lower end will follow. And therefore, you, the U.S. is actually creating a more divestment or divergence of investment from China to other areas. Ultimately, that will weaken uh, the bilateral trade relationship between U.S. and China. Mm. And ahead of Raimondo's visit, the U.S. Commerce Department announced that it removed the 27 Chinese companies from the U.S. export controls. So what is that implication? Well, uh, first of all, I believe that the U.S. side is trying to create an environment or atmosphere that fit for Secretary Raimondo's visit to China. That, is, of course, is a goodwill gesture to the Chinese side. However, that 27 companies should not be listed in the first place. 
and the U.S. is delisting them from something called uh, unverified list. That means the U.S. wanted to verify whether or not those companies are related to uh, Chinese military or uh, other uh, uh, end users that uh, do not allow by the U.S. side. So I think this gesture, on the one hand, is welcomed by the Chinese side, particularly, I mean, the uh, Commerce Ministry from China already said that uh, that is a, a positive step. However, uh, that kind of list, the very existence of that kind of list, means that the U.S. is still trying to uh, affect or influence companies' decisions and trying to force companies to comply with uh, U.S. Uh, regulations, and particularly long-arm jurisdiction uh, regulations. So mm-hmm. I think uh, you know th- this kind of weapon is uh, has a dual uh, effect on China-U.S. relations, and overall speaking, uh, that the list is a very negative existence for this uh, uh, very very healthy bilateral trade relationship. And how do you see the overall economic and trade relations between China and the United States? Historically, the economic interdependence has been regarded as the uh, cornerstone of the China-U.S. relations. But given the current geopolitical landscape, do you think it's still viable to depend on economic ties as the primary pillar for the foundation of China-U.S. relations? Uh, yes, I think we uh, continue to believe that uh, uh, economic uh, relationship, including trade, investment, and technology cooperation, is the ballast or the foundation, uh, a, a very strong foundation or pillar uh, for China-U.S. strategic relationship. So in order to have or improve the bilateral relationship, we have to first improve our commercial relationship so that both sides can uh, have a strong footing on on mutually beneficial uh, contact with each other. Uh, So far, the uh, relationship is like to put too much emphasis on national security, on geopolitical competition. And those areas, more often than not, are uh, mostly involved in zero-sum game or even negative-sum game. So in order to have a very positive, mutually beneficial relationship, and particularly having more sophisticated uh, cooperation uh, to deal with global problems, I think to build a strong, uh, resilient bilateral commercial relationship uh, is very important. So that's why I think Secretary Raimondo's visit is very critical uh, for the coming up uh, bilateral interactions uh, in the future. And we all know that the U.S. election is, is coming next year. So I think there are more uh, potential damaging events that could happen to the bilateral relationship. And therefore, without a better mutual understanding between the two sides, uh, the trade relationship uh, will again be infected by political, uh, very poisonous political environment in Washington, D.C. Mm. So I think that's why we have to uh, have a successful visit. Mm. So this year, we are seeing the American business people, including Bill Gates, Tim Cook, and Elon Musk, have lined up to visit China and got warmly welcomed. However, the political dialogue between these two sides got off to a slow start. So some have dubbed the current picture as hot economics and cold politics. So is that an accurate description, do you think? Um, Yes and no. And and I would describe that in a different way. I think it's... Mm. uh, uh, rational uh, businessman and irrational politicians. So that means that uh, y- y- those uh, business people from the United States are coming to visit China means that they put a very important emphasis on the potential and uh, you know forward-looking uh, uh, th- at the Chinese market. They believe that the Chinese market will continue to grow, and they believe that uh, U.S. investment in China is very important for their own benefit. And that is the very rational thinking. And right now, I think, again, in D.C., in Washington, there's a lot of irrational politicians are, are uh, you know, uh, blowing up uh, you know, disproportionately on those issues related to security and over-exaggerating uh, the so-called China threat. And those irrational voices are very loud, and they're preventing the rational thinking, uh, rational and, and uh, healthy economic relationship between the two countries. Dr. Zhao Hai with the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences talking to my colleague Zhao Yang. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. I am Dan Wang. Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China. The World Today is a real fun program. 
You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. South Korea has held its first nationwide air defense drills in some six years amid growing tensions with North Korea. In some areas, pedestrians were required to take shelters, and drivers were told to pull over. The drills are a key element of the annual Yochi Civil Defense Exercises. In addition, South Korean and American troops on Monday embarked on the Yochi Freedom Shield drills with an aim to improve responses to a missile attack or other possible contingencies. The Yochi Civil Defense Exercises were launched in the year 1969. There were some 17,000 shelters installed across the country. However, the air defense training part had not taken place since the year 2017. So, joining us now on the line is Dr. Rong Ying, Vice President and a Senior Research Fellow with the China Institute of International Studies. Welcome back. Thank you. So, judging from this latest piece of news, Dr. Rong, in your observation, do you think the tensions on the Korean Peninsula have reached a new high level since? 2017, and if that's the case, what do you think has really led to this renewed kind of、um, tension? Well, definitely, I think we are going to see more tensions, rising tensions on the peninsula and the region as a whole. As we know that the uh, the uh, situation uh, on the、uh, Korean, Korean peninsula、uh, had been quite、uh, stable or Improving since uh, the uh, early uh, 2018, the summit diplomacy between、uh, North Korea, United States, and certainly inter-Koreans, and so on and so forth.、Mm. Unfortunately,、uh, that has been changed, and to the extent, particularly in the in the wake of the Biden administration took over,、uh, taken over,、uh, that tension, that situation has changed uh, uh, or has been. Uh, change to the extent that more、uh, problems, more tensions are rising, and with the coming into office of the Yong's uh, uh, government in South Korea, we're having now re- repeated efforts along this line, focusing very much on the repetition, the renewed、uh, military exercises. I think the the military exercise we're talking about is one of the strong indications. Of the rising tension on the peninsula, and as the North Korea has been expected, re- responded very、uh, strongly. The Minister of Defense、uh, has of North Korea has made a remark that the the possibility, I mean, the question of nuclear、uh, conflict, nuclear war, is not a question of whether, but the the question of when. And the other, I think.、Uh, Sort of a step we may come、uh, in the wake of this、uh, exercise. So this is really a bad news. It is really something I think the、uh, the region as a whole and the world does not want to see.、Mm. Now, some media reports have suggested that actually、uh, many people in South Korea appear to have ignored this kind of a calls. Uh, to seek shelters in this particular、um, air defense drill. So, how would you look at this、um, phenomenon? Yeah, this is a very, I think, a striking uh, phenomenon uh, where uh, in which I think the disparity of perceptions of the general public、uh, vis-a-vis the government or the military sta- establishment、mm. uh, that reflects, I think,、uh, the、uh, the problem underlying on the peninsula. I think、uh, over the past months we have seen the、uh, South Korean government has repeatedly made efforts、uh, to strengthen its military、uh, alliances, military cooperations、uh, with within the framework of the so-called trilateral、uh, framework with Japan and the、uh, uh, United States. And then also I think that a lot of uh, uh, sort of pressure, a lot of、uh, sort of speculations. Uh, uh, and efforts actually on strengthening the so-called 
uh, uh, nuclear uh, deterrence and the nuclear extended uh, deterrence uh, 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 along the so-called extended deterrence. And while while the general public, as we have seen that, it seems that they take a different view. I think this is also more uh, interesting to note that the differences or disparity between perceptions is related to the uh, the differences of uh, of the government's efforts in pursuing security agenda at the expenses of its or by changing its policy vis-a-vis Japan. In other words, I think uh, Japan and uh, its relationship with Japan, its policy towards Japan has has becoming uh, 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 another uh, sort of a uh, uh, factor that uh, that that behind this change. And that, of course, raises other more complicated issues with the history issues, territorial disputes between South Korea and Japan. And this is, of course, something that really we have to watch uh, closely. Mm, we will keep observing, that's for sure. Now, um, actually, following a recent, um, you know, Camp David uh, uh, president, U.S. presidential retreat uh, trilateral summit, uh, held between the U.S., Japan, and South Koreans uh, top leaders. Uh, these uh, three countries uh, announced a raft of initiatives, which they say would institutionalize their their relationship or their relations, including annual military exercises, boosting communication mechanism, as well as uh, sharing of real time missile warning data regarding uh, North Korea. So, do you think these initiatives? Are will be in effect um, helpful in terms of upholding the regional security. That's the that's the statements. That's the rhetoric from these uh, three countries. I think it will be harmful to the situation, the security and the peace and the stability on that. As this is what add a more complication and add goes by goes against to the trend of the for peace and development in the region and make, I think, the situation on the peninsula and the region as a whole becoming more worrying, more complicated. As we know that uh, North Korea certainly is the, the, the country in the, in, on the peninsula certainly will feel the most pressure. And more importantly, it also, I think, uh, complicate or undermine the strategic uh, stability, uh, the strategic dynamic on the peninsula and the region. And this is also, I think, uh, 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 the uh, uh, factor that we have to uh, keep in mind, because over the past decades, particularly since the end of the Cold War, we will see that the, the, the peninsula, in general, I think we have seen efforts to pursue denuclearization and the establishment of a peace regime, which in the end would help uh, uh, the the the, the uh, uh, political settlement of the. Peninsula question and this peace and sustainable peace and step in the region. Unfortunately, all the I mean effort, the uh, institutionalization of the uh, uh, the trilateral cooperation uh, and the militarization, the block politics, the the tendency to pursue any kind of a cold war or cold war mentality, all goes against the trends. All goes against the development that we have talked about. And so this is also a very uh, disturbing, worrying development. And I think in the end, uh, uh, South Korea, Japan, and to some extent the United States would, I think, uh, feel that their so-called, their interests, their security interests were, were not going to be uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, guaranteed. And this, of course, the region as a whole were even more uh, 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 Facing the consequences of this uh, un uh, mm. sort of helpful and harmful uh, development. Thank you. That was Dr. Rongying joining us from the China Institute of International Studies. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. New official data show Japan's grain imports from Russia surged by more than 5,000% in July compared to the same period last year. In the meantime, Japanese exports to Japanese exports of medical products to Russia rose by more than 1,100% year-on-year in the same month. 
Overall, last month saw a 25% year-on-year growth in terms of the Japanese exports to Russia. Japan has followed the United States and European countries in slapping sanctions against Russia over the war in Ukraine. Late last month, Japan expanded its trade restrictions against Russia by announcing an export ban on electric vehicles. So, joining us now on the line is Professor Joseph Syracuse, Dean of Global Futures with Curtin University in Australia. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, looks like there is a strange、uh, phenomenon here. On one hand, Japan is sanctioning Russia, but on the other hand, at least in terms of some particular items, some particular categories of trade. There is increased trade volume between Russia and Japan.、Uh, what do you make of this phenomenon? Well, the、um, the Japanese have their own national interests, and no matter how much they may want to subscribe to Washington's、um, sanctions regime against Russia, some of these things go up against the grain. For example, I mean, they they need food, so they're going to buy、uh, grain products from.、Uh, From Russia and maybe medical supplies they want to ship back and forth, and、uh, you know the, the the Japanese government is interested in the、uh, more in the the letter of the sanctions regime rather than the spirit of it. Keep in mind that if the Japanese shipped or bought anything from a Japan that was in violation of the sanctions, then Japan itself will be subjected to、uh, second secondary sanctions. That they 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 would、uh, cop the penalties, or they would have the the sanction penalties as anybody else would for breaking the uh, uh, breaking the, the rules that the America set down. So、uh, Japan is、uh, playing a, a very interesting game here. Does what it has to do. At the same time, it genuflects in the direction of the American、um, sanctions regime. And keep in mind that. Sanctions only work about forty percent of the time. Never in the case of the superpowers, and, and most sensible people know that、uh, enforcing these these sanctions、uh, don't don't make any sense in the end. One hundred ninety three nations in the world, and one hundred and fifty four of them aren't having anything to do with sanctions against Russia. So people have voted on the sanctions、uh, with their feet, as a matter of fact, because.、Uh, Uh, when Japan moves back from American sanctions within the、uh, the letter of the law, it's just doing what 154 other nations are doing in an open in an open way.、Mm. Now let's talk about a particular area, energy, which I personally think is、uh, even more interesting than other normal trade categories.、Uh, Wall Street Journal once reported earlier this year. That at the time Japan had been purchasing Russian crude oil at a price that exceeded a price cap by the G7 group. Of course, I mean the price cap was in G7 or set by the G7. We are talking about here is of course aimed at、uh, curtailing Russia economically or sanctioning Russia. So, Professor, what is your thought about why Japan has been doing so? It is a a member of the G7. Well, that's true, but、um, Japan is 100. I'm going to say this a second time: 100 dependent on energy from elsewhere. Has no coal mines, has no oil fields,、mm. no natural gas. I mean,、uh, Japan is dependent on the outside world for Japan, for Japanese industry and and the domestic life to move along. So,、uh, I'm not surprised they were buying.、Uh, Uh, Russian oil above the G7 cap. The G7 cap. There's nothing magical about it. There's no supply and demand. There's no. It's not about a, a price point. It is an arbitrary decision you know, to put、uh, on, on Russian oil so as to punish Russia. And so when the, the Japanese go above the cap, they're simply taking care of themselves. They have their own security needs. Now already we've mentioned food, grain,、yeah. and now energy. Which keeps houses warm in the in the winter and cool in the summer. I mean, Japan cannot give up its national life to、um, to、uh, pursue the American economic、uh, the the sanctions regime. I mean, no nation has the right to commit suicide on behalf of somebody else. So I think the Japanese are trying to tell、uh, the outside world that that while they are maintaining the 
the letter of the sanctions it, to genuflect towards their uh, uh, the, their military uh, alliance, and that in terms of the spirit of it, they're not mm. buying the whole thing for a whole lot of reasons. Okay. So, by the way, um, in a bigger picture, I think, Professor, uh, you know better than I do, because when we talk about Japan's relations with Russia, it's been a pretty, you know, um, tricky relationship we are talking about since the end of the Second World War. Uh, between the two sides, there are some disputes over territory and maritime disputes, islands, etc. And while, you know, Japan supports this kind of a Western effort or attempt to confront Russia over the war in Ukraine, actually it has been pretty restrained when we talk about, say, providing Ukraine with uh, weapons like other G7 nations do. Um, it has mostly only offered some humanitarian aid to Kiev. So with that in mind, what do you think is really on the minds of the Japanese foreign policymakers in addition to those realistic needs like feeding its people, uh, warming its people in winter and summer, like, like you talked about earlier? Well, while the Japanese and the Russians have some long lingering disputes at the end of the Second World War, they have been pretty good neighbors in the meantime. You know, they understand each other. They've been around a long time. I mean, uh, Japan's natural enemy in their strategic neighborhood is not Russia, it's China. And, and, and the Russians know this, too, as a matter of fact. The, the Japanese are, are not rushing into some war with China. They do not approve of the proxy war with, with Russia in, in, in against Ukraine. I mean, they, they know this is a mistake. The, the, the Biden administration put all of its chips on the table in this proxy war with Russia uh, via U Ukraine. So the, the Japanese aren't foolish like that. They're not going to put all their chips on the table for this one. And they know something else, too. Uh, wars come and go, and they, they all have to end with diplomacy. And whether people like it or not, we're into the end game of the war in Ukraine. The counteroffensive, you know, never never got traction. It didn't ch turn the results. I mean, mm. uh, Russia has destroyed what it's wanted to destroy and conquered what it's wanted to conquer. And so uh, I think the, the Japanese are, are, are looking over the American shoulders and figuring, well, you know, maybe this thing is going to come to an end. We should be part of the end process. I mean, uh, forget about the sovereignty of another nation. Mm -hmm. I think the, the Japanese would like to, like to get some... Uh, normality back into e international economic life, not necessarily the rules of the road, but you know that nations trade with whomever they have to trade in order to survive, uh, regardless of who their allies are and the like. And I, I think um, uh, the Japanese have played this very coolly, as a matter of fact. Uh, they're, they're doing what they have to do to to prosper and survive the best they can, and mm -hmm. they uh, and, and and I think uh, their dealings with Russia is frankly a hedge against something going wrong with Washington. I mean, the Washington alliance system depends on the next person who's elected. Yeah. If it's Biden, you might get more of the same. If it's Trump or someone like Trump, we're going to get a, a disconnection again, and everybody's going to have to figure out what's going on. So the, the Japanese are not foolish. They know there are elections coming. In 2024, I think even in Russia too. So they they're, they're biding their time. I think mm. they're playing a very clever hand, by the way, yeah. with these particular sanctions because they while they keep the Americans on side, they uh, they're tending to their own people, which at the end of the day is the whole business of government. Mm. Thank you very much for your analysis. That was Professor Joseph Syracuse, Dean of Global Futures, with Curtin University. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. China is carrying out an anti-corruption campaign in the healthcare sector. Data compiled by some media outlets in this country show at least 177 hospital directors and party secretaries have been placed under investigation so far this year, more than double the figure last year. The National Health Commission says that the efforts now will focus on people who have used their power to obtain kickbacks as well as corruption in the pharmaceutical field. Chinese authorities have launched several rounds of crackdowns on medical corruption since the year 2006. 
So joining us now on the line is Professor Yao Shujian with Chongqing University. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi. So first of all, in a bigger picture, how how would you look at the timing of this anti-corruption campaign? Yeah, the healthcare sector in China is so important for people's livelihood. Under the communist leadership, the the top party, uh, you know, of officials and particularly Xi Jinping, he is campaigning for, uh, you know, try to balance economic growth and also improving the quality of life of the people. And healthcare happened to be the most important one uh, because the uh, big population uh, and also a vast diversity of people living in the countryside in the cities. So the demand for healthcare is extremely, uh, you know, strong. Uh, particularly when people's uh, you know, living standard have improved. Uh, but the problem is that the housing, sorry, the healthcare system reform is not yet uh, perfect. There are loopholes here and there, not only in, in the treatment system, in the hospital, the recruitment system, uh, patient care, and also, most importantly, the the cost of uh, you know medical care, uh, including medicines, which is provided by uh, so many uh, providers in the market, mm. it involve a lot of competition for uh, a particular you know branch of uh, medicine for a particular disease. So there is a, a lot of lobbying uh, process of the. The, health, the the pharmaceutical industry and also the health healthcare system. Mm. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, when uh, patients are admitted to the hospital, uh, because of the most of the hospital, they are partially supported by the state, but partially driven by commercial uh, environment and also the desire uh, for the top managers and also. Uh, high-end uh, doctors, they want to get, uh, you know, as rich as, as possible. Mm. So some of these issues, you know, uh, you know, adding up together, it become a systematic problem. Uh, mm. I hope that the, yeah. you know, prosecution so, of some leader may solve the problem, but this is only the starting point. Mm. So, Professor, exactly regarding this point that you have raised regarding, say, some uh, market forces uh, trying to lobby um, uh, doctors or hospital managers. Uh, I mean, according to some um, academic research, um, bribery is by far still the most common form of medical corruption in China. However, those traditional practices like doctors accepting red envelopes from their patients have been largely replaced by this kind of um, you know so-called commercial bribery uh, involving pharmaceutical, medical equipment suppliers and doctors and hospital managers. So how do you think China can institutionalize uh, the checks and uh, you know the 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 usual or regular crackdowns on this kind of um, corrupt corrupt behavior. Uh, I, I think the Chinese government have to invest more heavily in the health sector, uh, you know, hospital, and also try to provide more uh, you know balanced uh, quality of the medical services, particularly the training of medical doctors, not only in the large metropolitan city like Beijing and Shanghai, but also, you know, doctors have to be, uh, you know, trained and, and become highly qualified across the country. So this is the one of the problems. The other problem is that the, the payment system for the doctor have to be more transparent. Uh, the incentive system have to be uh, so designed that uh, doctors have uh, limited uh, incentive to accept red envelope. I think red envelope is still a, a big issue. No, no, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that it has uh, diminished or died yeah. away. Uh, but the the bribery of the pharmaceutical sector is far more eminent, particularly the procurement of medical care, uh, you know, equipment. These are highly expensive. Some of them are imported from abroad. They cost a lot of money, and because they cost a lot of money, these uh, particular medical equipment have to apply basically across to most of the patients just to get 
the patient to support the procurement of this uh, procurement. So the social, the so-called effective medical checkup, checking, uh, you know, treatment, and so on, it, it imposes quite a lot of costs on the on the the poor patient. Mm. So it got to be reformed, uh, you know, uh, according to the nature of the problem, uh, systematically and also uh, segmentically of different sectors of the medical, uh, you know, care uh, sector. Yeah. Mm. So. Uh, I mean, one issue in in China's healthcare system is uh, many hospitals. They are labeled as public hospitals or government affiliated hospitals, but in reality, they are driven by profits because they receive very limited amount of funding from the government. In reality, so I guess um. In order to take care of、uh, the money or the pay, the payroll of their doctors and other kind of medical staff members, they need they there there is this kind of breeding ground for corruption and by involving market forces. So, do you think this issue should be addressed in order to advance the fight against、um, medical corruption? Yeah, this is probably the 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 fundamental problem. On the one hand. Uh, the public funding is inadequate, and also the system is not incentivized,、uh, so that every level of the medical care system, they would not have much incentive to、uh, become corrupt.、Uh, now we we face on a system problem because the medical doctors, the, the managers, their payment could be relatively low on the paper, and in order to have bonus and also year end、uh, payoff. Uh, hospital, they become、uh, partially commercialized to charge excessively on the patient to get more income、uh, from the hospital treatment, and 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 they try to boost the doctor's income not only just to keep the qualified doctor on the on the payroll system, but also you know、uh, over time it actually、uh, generated a, a kind of greed to some extent of the. Some 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 greedy doctors and managers. So this is the problem. This problem can be partially resolved by the prosecution process that we see, but I think it has to be fundamentally addressed、uh, to see the nature of the problem、uh, to create a more balanced policy to address the issue. However, this got to be a very long and painful process. Hmm. Indeed. Thank you very much. That was Professor Yao Shujie from Chongqing University. Definitely, over the long term, healthcare reform is on China's agenda in order to make healthcare more affordable. So, hopefully, the ongoing medical anti-corruption campaign will advance the long-term healthcare reform. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. I'm Ding Hen in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.